A lot of top 25 losses this week. Did your ballot, did you basically light it on fire, the one from the previous week? <laughs> I, uh, I thought it was going to be easy. Uh, and then I opened up my ballot and it's like, oh, yeah, crap. I voted for Christopher Newport. Oh, look, I had Wheaton higher than I should have had. Um, and it was like, yep, we're going to. I've now taken to doing the poll on Saturday night before I go to bed because Sunday's just way too crazy. So yeah, they are. Thankfully, I did that because otherwise. I don't know what I would have done on Sunday. I would have just been tearing my hair out. Mine actually wasn't that bad until I got to 12. My 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, and 20 teams lost. And, you know, some of them <laughs> lost to better teams on the ballot. But I was like, oh, this ballot's still looking good, still looking good. And then it was just like, you know, take scissors and cut the middle of it out. 34 seconds, down 31, 28. Third and goal. Fake a punt. Yeah. Yeah. Touchdown, yeah. Big Blue! Right the 13th right Thunder trail. <laughs> Milliken 34-31 with 31 seconds left. And the sideline is going absolutely bananas. Snap is good. Hold is good. Kick is blocked! It's blocked! And Wesley College is going to win this football game. And they're going to run it back. I don't know why, but they are. And Wesley College has won this football game. Now he throws it across the middle. Intercepted by Chris Brown at the 35. And Brown cuts it back. One man to beat at the quarterback. And Chris Brown is going to go. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. And my co-host, Keith McMillan, has been involved with the site since 99. And Keith, this is where you tell us... No, wait, that's later. This is where Keith does the introduction thingamajobber. Well, hi, I'm here. I'm the person who uh, balances Pat out, who played... Who, um, I don't know. What else? I don't know. That's good. Yeah, we have to have a guy who played football because uh, just having a guy who played baseball and two guys who copy edit is not the best way to do a, a football podcast, but uh, maybe the best way to, uh, you know, try to, I don't know, keep clean copy on the website. I'm not sure. Big week. Often in our rundown, we have a, a list of bullet points and things we want to talk about and, and stuff like that. And maybe we even kind of write out some of the stuff. Here for about the first 12 minutes of the show, we have a sentence and a half, and I think the editors would say neither of those is actually a sentence. So um, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be spitballing this. Those of you who like when we're unscripted are gonna think it's awesome. Those of you who hate when we're unscripted are, I don't know. This is too important st- uh, stuff to uh, to skip past. A lot of big stuff happened this week, Keith. Uh, six top 25 teams losing, although a lot of them two other top 25 teams and just kind of a big week. So where do we want to start? Are we going to like spin the wheel here or something? Oh, I don't think we, we need to spin the wheel necessarily. It's um, It was – this is the part of the season where it gets really good. And we knew it going into the week because there were four matchups of top 25 teams. That was the Mary Harden-Baylor-Harden-Simmons game, Mountain Union-Heidelberg. It was um, – how am I drawing a blank? UST. Oh, West, oh yeah. <laughs> Wesley and Frostburg State and uh, Concordia Moorhead and St. Thomas were the uh, were the the four matchups of top twenty five teams. There were also some games um, with with one top twenty five team and another one just outside the top twenty five in uh, W and J, 
in Carnegie Mellon, which was unbeaten, DelVal and Albright. So it was a great week, really uh, all around. There were good games, you know, with with big implications all across the board. And I think, you know, we might as well just start right at the top because I think as you and I filed our ballots on Saturday night or Sunday morning, um, whenever it is that we get around to them, you know, the first question we had to ask ourselves is, is Mary Harden Baylor number one? Is Mountain Union uh, number one? Mary Harden Baylor played number five Harden Simmons in a defensive slugfest. That's kind of been their style when they face teams of uh, a similar caliber is to play, play it a little close to the vest, run the ball, um, play great defense. And they did that on Saturday at Harden Simmons. They won 17-7. On the other hand, Mount Union, as they are wont to do uh, early in seasons before they get to, say, the third round of the playoffs, just blew the doors off a team that had been looking pretty great uh, up until um, Saturday's game in, in Tiffin, Ohio. That was Heidelberg. They lost 63-7. Mount Union returned a couple of uh, interceptions for touchdowns, got um, contributions from, from all over the board, and basically looked like a team that um, – you know, that's hitting on all cylinders at this point in the season, but they often do that, and it's hard to judge what that means in the context for where they're going to go at the end of the season. I think the real um, standout thing about Mountain Union is a lot of the names, uh, that the, the guys that are playing key roles. You know, several of them were key players last season, but I think nationally, for those who, um, who don't follow Mountain Union closely and who listen to the podcast, there are a lot of key players who aren't yet household names in D3 to whatever degree a, a D3 player could be a household name. Yeah, uh, Lewis Berry, who had the uh, the pick six in the game, he's the one name, I think, if you ran down this uh, scoring summary, who you would have heard of at least more than 13 months ago. Uh, are we doing uh, – we need to have like a Mount Union quarterback watch. I don't, I don't even know if that would have a ticking clock or something. D'Angelo Fulford, 17-24 to 24 for 341 yards and uh, four touchdowns. Uh, this Jawanza Evans-Morris – uh, 63 yards. Fulford ran for 62. Luke Porman, the backup quarterback, ran for 55. Josh Petricelli, he had that uh, great run everybody was ooing and eyeing about a few weeks ago. Um, you know, these are guys who are, yeah, as you said, maybe not D3 household names yet, but how about these uh, two uh, standout days by receivers, right? Uh, Justin Hill with two touchdown catches. Jared Ruth with a pair of touchdown catches. Both of them with a, with a long one in there as well. And uh, I think now we're starting to not only see uh, Mount Union again. We've we've seen Mount Union firing on all cylinders all year, but now we're beginning to see you know some of the different names come to the top of it. Sure, and you and I have done this long enough to know that there's sort of a, a psychology involved when you play Mount Union, especially for the the teams in Ohio that do it every season. They know that when they're playing Mount Union, they're playing sort of the the history of the that program, which has been. Uh, you know, the top program in, in Division Three since, you know, 1993 or so. So, you know, when they go up top from from Fulford to Jared Ruth, 70 yards on the first play of the game, they get on top of you, uh, on top of Heidelberg, 14.45 to go in the game. The first 15 <laughs> seconds, they score again uh, in the first five minutes and, and take a 14-0 lead. You know, that 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 weighs heavily on a team. But the the interesting thing, of course, is that Heidelberg struck right back made it a 14-7 game, and so you figured, okay, Heidelberg weathered that early storm. They're, they're going to make this a game, and then nope. nothing of the sort happened. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, bam, bam, bam. 
I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm pointing at this the lines on the box score here the uh, the scoring summary um, a touchdown with 519 to go in the first quarter that's uh, two minutes and 16 seconds after the Heidelberg touchdown uh, a touchdown on a 15 play drive just to open up the second quarter uh, a touchdown then three and a half minutes later with uh, you know and it's it went from 14 7 to 35 7 and you know basically if you're following the uh, uh, the updates on Twitter and you're not uh, a Mount Union fan, you've tuned out because you know where this uh, you know where this is going. Yeah, and the other thing that that really stands out about Mount Union, they just scored quickly uh, on on Saturday. One play drive, two play drive, five play drive, another two play drive. Um, Twenty one points in each of the first three quarters, and uh, and set it to coast after that. So Heidelberg pretty good. They came in that game four and zero, but not Mount Union good. And I think that gave voters. Who were who? Twenty one out of the twenty five on the panel were were um, set on Mary Harden Baylor before Saturday. Gave him some reason to reconsider, but then you also have to to consider that uh, that Mary Harden Baylor is playing a top five team in Harden Simmons. Right. So a little bit more about that game, uh, and Keith, you already uh, correctly characterized this as a as a defensive affair. Not surprising. Not difficult to do uh, in a. Uh a 17-7 game, a game in which uh, Mary Harden Baylor got one of its touchdowns via interception return. Actually, this is an instance, Keith, and I was watching this game fairly closely in the first half, especially where uh, I was super impressed by Harden Simmons uh, staying in it, where Heidelberg did not hang in with Mount Union. Harden Simmons already playing with its backup quarterback. We don't know why the number one quarterback has been suspended. We have uh, there's no information about that. Uh, so they're playing with uh, Ty Hooper, a backup quarterback. Um, Chris Brown uh, picks him off and returns it for a touchdown. You heard uh, that in our uh, open. And then uh, at the end of the first quarter, kind of a quick strike, 83-yard drive, and Markeith Miller finishes it off with a 39-yard touchdown run. But then, you know, Harden Simmons kind of hung with it. And, and Keith, I, I Maybe you can pick up the narrative because I think you were uh, you were more tuned into the game when Harden Simmons got on the board and tried to get back into it. Yeah, there was a sequence in the third quarter when uh, Harden Simmons put together a quick five-play drive. Jaquan Hemphill scored on a short touchdown run with about five minutes to go in the third, and they cut it to 17-7. They do um, – it's not an onside kick, but it, it wasn't a deep kick either. It was one of those angled kicks – um, tore the sideline, stayed in bounds, hit the ground. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor uh, player tried to field it, kind of dove and missed it. Ball bounced. Harden Simmons recovers it, and so then they set themselves up with a short field, an opportunity to turn a 17-0 game into a 17-14 game in a very short period of time. Mary Harden Baylor's defense stiffens up. Harden Simmons hooks the 39-yard field goal attempt wide left, and from there, Mary Harden Baylor kind of does what it does in a sense of, um, again, leaning on the defense, leaning on the running game to to get a handful of first downs. And even though they didn't score again, they did a nice job each time they had the ball, milking some clock and, and putting that pressure back on Harden-Simmons to score. The the huge takeaway from just looking at both of the both the Mary Harden-Baylor and, and Mount Union, not just these games on Saturdays, but their starts, to the season, uh, Mount Union's given up 31 points all season. Mary Harden Baylor 34, and they've both now played uh, one 
top quality opponent. Mary Harden Baylor, matter of fact, played two. I was going to say, um, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to have to pull out Stat Boy there for a second. Right, right, because they uh, they had uh, the the Linfield game earlier, and right now Linfield is uh, remains in the top ten as well, even though uh, they lost to Mary Harden Baylor twenty four three. So you look at the uh, what Mary Harden Baylor has done defensively. Uh, Harden Simmons. 191 yards of total offense on Saturday. They were coming in. They were averaging. Uh, they were number one in the country. They're averaging about 68 points a game. They're coming off an 83-point game. We spent a lot of last week's podcast uh, talking to uh, one of the Cowboys running backs about his eight-touchdown day. It was a one-touchdown day for, for Hemphill on Saturday and for the entire uh, Harden-Simmons program. So yeah. certainly disappointing. Uh, only 31 yards rushing, uh, 2.7 yards per play. Couldn't get really anything going against Mary Harden Baylor, and and that's the way they beat you. That's right now uh, why they're defending champions. Watching Hemphill, watching what they were trying to do with them. Often a team's mistake uh, is trying to run to the outside against a team that has speed. They also tried to run him up the middle. Uh, he just wasn't getting a lot of running room. He did have a 15-yard run, but you know if you take that out, then the rest of the 21 carries are a total of 37 yards. It was just a uh, it was a struggle for him to get any space. Um, you know, I know you and I didn't think that, uh, that the Mary Harden Baylor defensive front was going to have any trouble after, uh, Tedrick Smith's graduation, but, uh, here's a, a real good example of exactly where that, uh, was proven true. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just in the run game. You, you mentioned the, the running numbers, Harden Simmons, uh, get less than a yard per carry, but Mary Harden Baylor also had eight sacks. So when, whenever Harden Simmons, uh, tried to get something going through the air, they uh they they weren't able to do it and and right now you know when you when you go back to that ballot and there probably isn't a wrong answer at this point and and when the uh when the week six poll came out on Saturday there were still 21 voters with Mary Harden Baylor and four with Mount Union uh, number one on their ballot so I I don't know if anybody switched and it just happened to be the same number or if everybody stuck with, stuck with the number they had the week before but I think you could make a case. For either one at this point, they're both playing so great defensively. And and if you've watched long enough, you know not to read into Mary Harden Baylor's low scores offensively because they uh, they will happily play a low scoring game with a team. Not not saying they're not trying to to win sixty three seven, but they uh, their their style of play really lends itself to the twenty four three and seventeen seven type of wins in big games. They just don't take a lot of risks. They don't want to turn the ball over, and they're happy to lean on the defense. And right now, the, the defense is is cashing in for them. Uh, real quickly before we move on to another game, your thoughts about Harden Simmons still number five in the poll after that game? Yeah, I, I think Pat, you and I have, have talked over the years where. Sometimes you watch a game on Saturday and it, it justifies where where you had everybody. In this case, I, I think um, you would expect the number five team or, or if you had Harden, Simmons, seven or eight or wherever you had them on your ballot, you would expect them to lose a competitive game to the number one or the number two team on your ballot. So um, I don't think there was any any huge surprise there. Harden, Simmons didn't move at all for me. Uh, I contemplated it. But when you look at the teams that are currently slotting in behind, uh, Harden Simmons, you got St. Thomas with a loss, St. John's with the loss of St. Thomas. Um, the, really, the only teams you can you can jump ahead of them would be North Central or, or Linfield. Uh, North Central already ahead of them as well. Um, the this is the an instance where the coaches poll will probably drop them a little bit further, but we won't know until uh, you guys will see it. Uh, I'm sure at some point somewhere 
uh, it comes out after this podcast is done. But yeah, that's something I think that our voters do really well. Another game. Concordia Moorhead goes to University of St. Thomas with its backup quarterback, with a freshman quarterback, and the offense does, I guess, about what you would think a, uh, a freshman quarterback might do against the University of St. Thomas in a big game. Well, it, it was definitely the you know part of it on the, the Concordia Moorhead offense, but I think this was really... The, the St. Thomas defense has, has shined pretty much since the St. John's game, and this was... Um, by far their, their best performance of the season, at least numerically. Um, 21-0 win. St. Thomas, you know, you can't, you know, I don't know if you say they're in control the whole time because you look at that game and you say, well, Concordia Moorhead, if they get something going at any point uh, during the game, you know, you're, they're, they're right in it. They're only a couple scores away. It was a 14-0 game at the half. So every time Concordia Moorhead touches the ball in the second half, they're one play away from making it a one-score game, and they just never did. Uh, and, and then St. Thomas uh, adds a adds a, a score on a two-yard drive in the third quarter. So St. Thomas didn't exactly light it up offensively itself, just 277 yards, only 157 of those yards rushing. But the defensive numbers for St. Thomas were just staggering. And I don't want to go too deep into them because those are my stats of the week. But um, – <laughs> Concordia Moore had three of fourteen on third down, uh, seventy-eight yards rushing. They just couldn't get anything going, and and again, you attribute some of it to to playing without uh, top quarterback, but also I think you attribute a lot of it to uh, the way the the Tommy's defense has played. Keith, I, I want to leave this part of the segment with one number that I know uh, I don't know if will be in your stat of the week or not, but Concordia Moorhead not only did not threaten. The farthest they got was their own 44-yard line, and that was the play they ended the game on at their own 44. That pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, with their starters uh, still in the game uh, in the final seconds there, they got out to the 44. I mean, that's a, that's a, about a dominating a defensive performance as you can have. And now we're looking at a theme between uh, these these top three teams. And uh, as we move on to the, the fourth game between – uh, top 25 teams, the Wesley Frostburg State game. Uh, that one was the the most even game of the day. It certainly wasn't one where one defense smothered the other, but uh, but there were some some big plays late that uh, that tilted that one. Yeah, an entertaining one, and and one in which Keith, I thought that uh, the uh, Wesley had uh, you know they gotten out to a seven nothing lead, and it was uh, close seven uh, ten seven at the half. Frostburg State looked really good in the second quarter. I watched a, a lot of the second quarter. I watched a lot of the fourth quarter and all of the overtime. Um, you know, I saw Wesley break out some big plays, individual big plays, but I didn't really see um, I didn't really see consistency on offense. The the one thing that they uh, they did really well was you know again move the ball with big plays and and they converted their field goals which is a, a something that I'm sure we'll talk about before we leave this game but I um, you know I, I think that's also a testament to the Frostburg State defense even though they allowed 439 yards in total offense it wasn't that Wesley was grinding out drives is that they were getting big plays and kind of you know finishing around that I guess. Yeah, the, the two big plays that stood out were the ones that took it from a 10-7 Frostburg state lead at halftime to a 21-10 game midway through the third. Wesley got a 56-yard touchdown catch from Alex Kemp, one-play drive, and then a 67-yard touchdown catch from E.J. Lee. 
Um, and and those two plays vaulted Wesley on top. But yeah, and they were very close to really putting this thing away too. Uh, except that uh, Lee fumbled the ball on the one yard line going in, and Frostburg State pulled out a uh, seventy nine yard play and a twenty yard play, and bam, bam, they're in the end zone to cut it back to a four point game. Yeah, and and it, it ended up being a, a back and forth game the entire way. Goes into overtime. Wesley uh, kicks a field goal in its overtime, blocks Frostburg State's attempt, and uh, and makes reference. I thought this was kind of neat in the post game, uh, making reference to um, a playoff game last season against John Carroll that uh, was similarly close, went to two overtimes, and Wesley ended up losing that game, ending the season. And, and so they said, hey, you know, we don't we don't want this one to go the way the the John Carroll one went last year. So went ahead and ended it. In uh, in the first overtime, that uh, blocked field goal is the one that was referenced in the uh, open of this uh, podcast, which I'm now kind of switching back to see. Oh yeah, you know, 19 minutes ago. Glad you're still with us. Um, these were our four ranked games, and we still have a, a couple of others too. Um, and also, uh, before we uh, before we leave this one too, Frostburg State last year left on the left on the table. Maybe the last team left on the table. I'm not sure. Uh, at nine and one, with a strength of schedule that ended up being about five eighteen, they're going to track probably a little bit better than that this year. Uh, they replaced Geneva on their schedule with Stevenson, and that should bump things up a little bit. Uh, the NJAC, I think, is going to play out pretty similarly because it's a ten-team league, and that will flatten out the strength of schedule. But uh, you know, Frostburg State. You know, I, I assume you saw the conversation that uh, I had with Coach Delane Fitzgerald at the beginning of the season or before the season started, right before the season started. They have lots of high hopes this year. And, you know, now that's uh, something they have to recover from and kind of try to bounce back because the uh, NJAC doesn't get the NJAC still tough. Yeah, it is. And I think that's going to be the same case for, for Wesley now, even though they're in really great shape standing where they stand for their final five games are at home. The other one is at Montclair State. Um, that means they play their their big rival Salisbury. That game's now late in the season. It's a November fourth, week ten game. Um, you know they have Rowan, they have Christopher Newport still. So Wesley, after that season opening loss at Delaware Valley, twenty four nineteen loss. You look look back at, at hindsight at that, and uh, the better Delaware Valley does. They had a huge win on Saturday against Albright. Um, the better Delaware Valley does, the the less bad that loss looks, and uh, and this is also what Wesley does. They they very frequently lose a game early in the season. They get things together. They actually hadn't given up a point between um, the game against Frostburg State on Saturday and that that uh, Delaware Valley game. So they didn't give up a point all September, and uh, and, and now that they've uh, outlasted Frostburg State in overtime, they're rolling now. They're uh, in, in the driver's seat in the end, Jack, but uh, still a long ways to go. Delaware Valley, you mentioned uh, beating Albright. They just obliterated Albright. I tried to watch some of that game, and um, yeah, it was just that kind of just that kind of thing, man. It, it, it was it was really difficult to pay attention to on so many levels, aesthetically, uh, quality of football play, just because Albright was not competitive in that. Yeah, and I promise you I'm not going out of my way to make this a theme, but you look at Delaware Valley's 6-0 start. Um, Wesley and Wilkes are the only teams that have gone uh, out of single digits against them. Uh, the, their other wins are uh, 34-3, 27-7, 60-7, and then 41-6 at Albright on Saturday. Albright previously unbeaten. 
So Delaware Valley, you know, probably has been a program known for its offensive players. Uh, had put Rashid Bailey, wide receiver in the NFL at one point, had had star quarterbacks uh, over the years, um, had had a coach that was uh, kind of larger than life personality when it first um, when Delaware Valley first rose up from a, also ran to a to a nationally significant program. This is one of the few times we their defense is uh is is really standing out along with the offense so I, right now you're looking at a, a pretty complete team in delval and and you know there are some years the mac champion is you know goes out in the first round not a very serious contender i think you can't say that uh about this delval team the w and j carnegie mellon game this was a game we specifically last week uh, uh reminded people to not only pay attention to this but pay attention to what w and j did in their uh, unusual D3 Monday night football game against Teal. Uh, they obviously handled Teal really well, had a chance to get their guys out of the game, and it didn't really, you know, it, on paper it doesn't look like they had uh, much ill effects of that. Other than the fact that, you know, I mean, you go up to Carnegie Mellon, um, and Carnegie Mellon scores with 2.49 left to make it a one-possession game. So, you know, W&J looks, uh, you, you know, carry the one, uh, you know, flip the infinitive, and I think they look better than the 27 to 20 score indicates. Yeah, they got up early in that game, a 55-yard touchdown catch uh, by Cody Hurst from Alex Rouse. Um, interception return, uh, Nick Murgo um, put them up 14-0 midway through the second quarter. Carnegie Mellon got on the board. But W&J uh, kind of held a two-touchdown lead for most of that game. It was 27-13 late in the fourth before you mentioned uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon scoring and, and trying to keep that close. That was Carnegie Mellon's first loss. They were 5-0 and going into that game. W&J now 5-0. and And, you know, the, the interesting thing about W&J, we've said this since the beginning of the season, the, uh, the 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 strong contenders in the pack right now, the other one being Case Western Reserve, uh, don't meet. So uh, so there's a chance that that uh, the pack sends two undefeated teams to uh, to the board on Selection Saturday. I'm just gonna try to not let that uh, explode my brain. Don't let that explode too many brains of yours at the at the moment. But uh, another thing we'll come back to later. Uh, Carnegie Mellon now with a strength of schedule uh, of 414. Think of that as a winning percentage. Um, they're 204th in Division Three of the 237 teams that are ranked, and that's after playing W and J. Um, so uh, Carnegie Mellon five and zero. Saw their first big test uh, and fell to five and one. Keith, we're only twenty five minutes in. Shall we? Uh, shall we thank our sponsor? Uh, we should. I mean, I guess if we're going to really quickly touch on the other major games from from Saturday, and we'll get to some of them uh, a little later on. Uh, George Fox beat Whitworth. That was uh, no, another ranked team that lost. Uh, Whitewater, Wisconsin Whitewater beat Wisconsin Stout. Uh, that that Stout had creeped crept into the rankings, and then Wheaton upset by Milliken late in that game. So that's where uh, where all the carnage happened. And if you look at my ballot personally, I had Christopher Newport in there at 25. They lost 17-7 at Salisbury. So I had seven teams from my ballot lose on Saturday. And to be honest, you know, not only was it a bunch of great matchups, but uh, there were some some great finishes. And and I don't mind. Um, the ballot getting 
getting uh, reshuffled at this point in the season because uh, everything that happens is sort of a data point that we can work with to try to figure out who's who are the uh, best teams. I had CNU on my ballot too, you know, but again, it's week six. We have lots of data. It helps us make a, a top 25 decision a little bit easier. And we should take this time to let everybody know that uh, the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast this week is sponsored by FanRays. Keith, getting started with FanRays, so, so easy. I'm just basically emailing them a logo file, an EPS file of the D3Football.com logo. And that's how we're getting started. They'll send back a, you know, a little bit of paperwork about you know, actually giving them the, the rights to work with it. And boom, we should be uh, getting going here. Not by the time people listen to this podcast, but certainly by the time uh, you know, Podcast 180 drops. I think we'll be, uh, I don't know what we'll have out there, actually. We probably haven't talked about that too much, but uh, that's what we're going to do. It's going to be so simple. That's sort of the, the point of fan raise. That's the advantage that they bring. To, uh, to to D3 schools, and that's why we're, uh, we're thrilled to be affiliated with them. You open up your own store, and it's sort of, uh, there's sort of nothing to it. Go to thefanraise.com uh, to get started. Fanraise, F-A-N-R-A-I-S-E. Although I suppose if you were... Uh... Um, if, if you were listening to this and thought it was F-A-N-R-A-Y-S, actually, I don't know what that goes to. Fanraise, uh, thefanraise.com, we're looking forward to... Uh, you know, joining that in a, a more formal way, not just as them sponsoring the podcast. But if you haven't been listening to the past handful of podcasts where they have been uh, sponsoring us and we've kind of run down some of the features, remember, if you're in a situation where you have your team store, your temporary team store open for three weeks so that your guys can order their gear, your parents and uh, fans can order gear for a limited time for a few weeks, that is not something you have to do with FanRays. You can keep that open year-round and have that all there. Also, they're going to handle all the fulfillment, all the shipping. The last thing you want to do in July or August when you want to be preparing for camp is doing that stuff. And you definitely don't want to be doing it during the season. Let those guys handle it for you. That's what they're there for. Go to FanRays at thefanrays.com. Tell them the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast sent you. Although, if you're a Division three school, hopefully they figure that out anyway. Keith, we're going to keep giving out game balls until they take us off the air. And uh, this week, my game ball is going to Chris Brown of Mary Harden Baylor. Yeah, you may already know. He's the cornerback who intercepted a Ty Hooper pass and returned it 64 yards for a touchdown early in the first quarter, giving the crew a 7-0 lead over Harden-Simmons. But also broke up two other passes, had eight tackles, including a tackle for loss in that 17-7 win. As I was going through and kind of refreshing myself on that game, this is kind of one of the things I found about this, Keith, is uh, after that pick six, Harden-Simmons drives uh, back into Mary Harden-Baylor territory, and then here's what Brown did in the next three plays. He stopped a receiver at the line of scrimmage for no gain, stopped a running back for no gain, and broke up a pass on third and ten, basically almost single-handedly forcing a punt. Uh, his tackle for loss came in the first play of the next series. So if you're looking for a guy who really set the tone for his team in a defensive battle, Chris Brown is the man, and that's why I'm giving him my game ball. Well, also from the department of people who are the man, um, my game ball goes to someone who joined a super exclusive club in uh, in this weekend's game. Uh, as a member of the Four Interception Club, a gift that's been giving for more than 20 years, I've of course got to tip my hat to Jaquan Harris of Framingham State, who joined the even more exclusive Five Interception Club in Friday's win against Fitch Fitchburg State. 
He ties the uh, NCAA record uh, with uh, 11 others. And more importantly, the five turnovers helped push the Rams to 5-0 and and make them a legitimate contender for top 25 votes, given their earlier win over Cortland from the Empire 8. Harris's first pick came on his third play on the opening drive, and he returned at 19 yards. Fitchburg changed quarterbacks, but Harris added another pick in the second quarter. In the third, he intercepted James Antonelli to end three consecutive possessions. The weird thing about having that much success in one phase of the game is that there's still all these other parts of your job as a defensive back that you have to do, and you still have a function within the team. The rest of the team still has to turn those turnovers into points, and you still have a game to win. In this case, uh, Framingham State was was pretty well out in front, but I remember – in my uh, four interception game in 1996, having gotten my third interception, I think in the second quarter, and everyone uh, patting me on the helmet as you come over to the sideline, and I'm over there, I'm out of breath, and I look at the scoreboard, and it's 13 to 10. Like you had had done so well in the game, and it, the game's so far from over. Uh, we had a ways to go in that one. I got run over by a quarterback late in the game. I gave up a touchdown, but all anybody remembers is the picks. So enjoy it, Jaquan. I know it's not your first multi-interception game and you hope it isn't your last as there's half a regular season left to play and probably some playoff games but that five interception day not only earns you my game ball it earns you a memory that lasts a lifetime for my team on the rise in the poll this week keith i'm going to talk about wesley i've been holding back a little bit on wesley through this run of the bottom of the inject dwellers because well i i just hadn't really seen anything that helped me uh, throughout the course of the season. I, I'd been holding back on Delaware Valley a couple of spots, too. Basically, I was just waiting on this game against Frostburg State to get Wesley back into my top 20 if they won the game, and that was what they did. They won the game on the road in overtime, 27-24. Well, my riser is George Fox. Uh, I had a couple of holders on the ballot uh, this week. We talked about Harden-Simmons not really moving. Concordia Moorhead uh, didn't fall down my ballot either after losing to a team I had ranked higher. In St. Thomas. So it's okay for teams, I think, to lose to other top 25 teams uh, and, not, and not lose a whole bunch of ground because, um, you know, when you lose to teams ranked more highly in the poll, that's uh, what you would expect. But the team that really shot up my ballot was George Fox, which I have been voting for for a few weeks now, but in the, in the 20s. Since a respectable two point loss at uh, UW Platteville, the Bruins have beaten Redlands. They've beaten Wisconsin-Eau Claire, Pacific, and Whitworth, the last three by 20 or more points each. Saturday's 43-23 win against Whitworth is probably the the game that put George Fox, the program, uh, on some people's maps for the first time. Uh, but if you've been listening to the podcast, we've talked about them uh, for pretty much the course of the season. Wheaton is my slider, Keith. It wasn't the last game of the night that had top 25 implications, but it was pretty close. So I was kind of putting my own ballot together, compiling the info we send out to our voters, and Wheaton went down by four at Milliken with a few minutes left. At that point, I already knew Wheaton was going to be falling down my ballot. Even if they had hung on to the lead that they acquired with a buck 58 left, they were going to lose some ground just because I think I still have an expectation that uh, a number 13 team, and they were actually 12 on my ballot, is not going to be taken to the final minutes by Milliken, even as well as Milliken has been playing this year. Yeah, and the Big, the big Blue has been playing uh, uh, pretty well. Uh, I think in the cases of both Wheaton and Whitworth, voters have to ask, no matter how highly you had them ranked, whether a team that has had two losses now at this point in the season, week six, uh, are, are they one of the country's 25 best? And back-to-back losses, too. 
right, in, in both of those cases. Usually a team would either have to have an impressive win to contrast with those losses or have both of those losses be to higher-ranked teams to withstand that kind of resume when there's so many other unbeaten teams and, and one-loss teams at this point in the in the season. I think I counted 23 or 24 unbeaten teams in D3 uh, before we went on air. So that's practically the top 25 by itself. doesn't even account for the teams like um, Concordia Moorhead and St. Thomas and St. John's who, and, and Linfield who have losses to other top 25 teams. So, uh, you know, both of those teams, Wheaton and Whitworth, they slid out of my top 25 while each team um, had two conference opponents, uh, North Central and Illinois Wesleyan in the, in the case of Wheaton, George Fox and Linfield in the case of Whitworth. Uh, each one had two conference opponents that remain ranked for me. Uh, I also didn't feel compelled to keep Heidelberg ranked. I think there's a big difference between losing 17-7 at home to the number one ranked team and losing 63-7 at home to the number two ranked team. Yeah, I didn't feel compelled to keep them on my ballot either. Meanwhile, we'll talk a little bit more about Milliken in just a second. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Dan Gritty, the head coach at Milliken University. His team victorious on Saturday night, defeating Wheaton by the final of 35-31 to 31 in a super exciting finish, uh, Coach, in which, uh, suffice it to say, you guys scored 21 points in the fourth quarter, the last of them with the 31 seconds to go. Uh, how, did, uh, how did that fourth quarter kind of feel to you guys on the sideline? It felt pretty good. Uh, we were very confident, even after Wheaton came back, and as we know they did, would. they're a great football team that's very well coached. And they scored with about two and a half minutes left to go back up. But we were very confident that we were moving the ball well and we were going to be able to punch it in at the end, and, and we did. So it was a great night for us as a team, and it's a great night for Milliken as a university. I have to ask, since uh, my view on watching video from, you know, uh, on a laptop screen doesn't give me anywhere near the information, basically, that, uh, that I would like to, to see. When did you guys know that, uh, on, the, uh, on the interception on your final drive that there was a flag and it was coming back? It was while the ball was in the air. Okay. Um, so that I was looking right because they had been, you know, there had been a couple of close hits on our quarterback all night. And, and so I was trying to get him protected there. So I was looking right at it. So the ball went up in the, uh, the flag went up in the air after the ball was released. And I then turned to see the interception, but we knew it pretty well. So I, I was saved that heart attack. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk to you about Nico Stepina because this is a guy who, you know, we have seen his name now for, uh, you know, a year and a half uh, running now. This is a guy who's obviously made a help you guys make this significant step forward. Yeah, he's a great quarterback. And when we first got here, you know, we had seen his film from his freshman year and he was a great athlete that was still learning the position. Um, then last year took huge strides in becoming a quarterback. Uh, not just an athlete, and, and now um, I'd be hard-pressed to think of one or two other quarterbacks I would take over him. He's a, he's a great leader. He's playing within himself, and the legs he has, the ability to extend plays, and his ability to throw the ball with a great arm strength to the field to our very talented wide receiving core has really led us in, in the right direction. Well, and, and tell us about the... Um just the atmosphere on Saturday night. You ha guys have, uh, you know, you have a big crowd, you have a big game, and you have a, a top uh, 25 team in your house, and also it's homecoming. Yeah, it was electric. We had a little bit of rain beforehand, so we were actually expecting the crowd to size to be a little bit down. 
Uh, we have a, a great tailgating section here at Millican, and people just stayed in their cars until the rain stopped, which was about 20 minutes before kickoff, and everyone still came out and, and rooted us on, and, and it was a, an electric atmosphere, and it was great to see so many of the football alums there. It was great for my from my standpoint to see guys that graduated last year, even though I, I didn't have more than a year with them, I feel very attached to that class because when we came in here, they bought into what we were doing when they didn't have to. Um, and they're really a big part of our ability to turn this program around so quickly. When, when you, when teams win big games like this, often you hear from then alumni you haven't heard from a while or you know, hadn't heard from in a while. Uh, you haven't been head coach there for, you know, just about a, a season and a half or so. How connected are you with those guys? Do they, do you hear from those guys now at, in big games like this? Yes, absolutely. We have a great football uh, alumni advisory board uh, led by uh, Tom Mahoney, who got inducted into the hall of fame uh, last night. So that was that and Josh Warren, who were two players in the late nineties here. Um, they, uh, they did a great job and they keep us very in involved. Um, so they're always reaching out saying, Hey, you need help in recruiting here, or do you need help with resources there? And they've been a big part. One of the points I made to the team with it being homecoming was that they weren't just playing for themselves last night. They were playing for everyone that's worn a Millican Jersey, all the alums that are there at homecoming. And, uh, I, I referred back to the old, uh, soccer song, you'll never walk alone. We certainly didn't feel like we walked out into that field alone last night and some of the strength in being able to come back against such a quality team was based on knowing that we had the support of such a large group of alumni. When you were thinking about where this project might go, right, rebuilding a program that had been, uh, had won one conference game each of the previous three years before you got there, when did you think you might be to the point where now, I mean, obviously, you're just three games into the conference season, and I, I know that's probably going to influence the answer I'm going to get, but now in a position where you guys at least can be considered in the conversation with the contenders in the CCIW. I, I thought um, we got here quicker than, quite honestly, than I expected. I, I had a three-year plan going in here, very similar to the one we had when we went to Rhodes, where we thought in year three we would be ready to compete for a conference title. Um, you know, after getting uh, handed to us by North Central earlier this year, um, we made an emphasis of, do we want to be that great AAA baseball player who goes to the majors and can't get it done? Or do we want to continue to work and continue to focus so when we get a chance against major competition, which by all accounts Wheaton is, we can deliver. Um, and that's why it's such a big step for us last night. Um, though we're ahead of schedule, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, but I sure would rather be sitting here at 4-1 and one than 3-2. and two. Keith, my hidden highlight comes from the land of blue. I, I feel like I'm talking about Luther a lot this season, but I wouldn't be if they weren't interesting. So I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, and we'll start with a two-hour lightning delay in the first half. And then after a, a short halftime, Nebraska Wesleyan scored 10 more points to take a 38-21 lead. But Luther scored three times in the fourth quarter, last of them on a five-play 90-yard drive, capped by a 58-yard touchdown run from Yasin Ozani to tie the game with 3.58 left. Then Luther kicks a field goal to open overtime and survives a 45-yard field goal attempt from the Prairie Wolves that would have extended that game. Luther, the Norse, stand at 4-1 and one, heading to Simpson next week, and they haven't had a season with more than five wins since 2005. Uh, in my hidden highlight, Defiance had the game against Manchester 1, picking off a 4th and 7 Spartans pass to preserve what would have been a 21-14 victory. But 
Personal foul nullified the turnover, gave the Spartans a first down, and kept alive what would be a game-tying drive. Except it wasn't a game-tying drive because after Manchester scored a touchdown with 108 left to make it 21-20, Cody Graham missed the extra point. Manchester then seemed headed to heartbreak, but another kicker, sophomore Reed Camerdiner, booted the perfect onside kick. Manchester recovers. Then they set up Graham for a 24-yard go-ahead field goal, and the freshman redeemed himself. There were still, though, 25 seconds left at that point, and Manchester put defiance at midfield with a personal foul, and the Yellow Jackets nearly rallied, completing a pass in the field goal range, but going out of bounds as time ran out, and they lose that game 23-21 to, uh, to Manchester. Wow, it's like that game picks up where the Milliken-Wheaton game left off, except it had like two Law & Order twists on the way there. It's, it's funny because I had that similar thought. There was a point in that Wheaton game where Milliken is driving, and uh, inside the final two minutes, Wheaton picks off uh, the pass, and, and in theory, you know, you, you intercept that pass, you fall down, kneel it out. Instead, you, you, that drive continues. Milliken goes on to, uh, to punch it in. With, and then Wheaton gets the ball back and, and has a chance to win that game. So, yeah, um, you, you guys heard Dan Gritty talk about that point in the, uh, the Wheaton-Milliken game. Defiance-Manchester had a very similar scenario, except that, uh, that Manchester hung on to win. My double take comes from one of Saturday's upsets, even well before it was final. I, I was keeping half an eye on the George Fox-Whitworth game, and I, I knew the Bruins had taken the early lead, but kind of stopped tracking it when it got to halftime with uh, George Fox up 20 to nothing. Well, so I tune in not even half a quarter later, and they have Whitworth down 34-7. Uh, I knew Whitworth, I know Whitworth puts some points on the board after that, but even that 43-23 final score is misleading. This was really a beatdown of the Pirates. Look at me. Sure. I'm the captain now. My double take. Gallaudet, 73, Anna Maria, 23. That's the score that threw me off most. But not just the 73 points, but that it came from the Bison, who were previously 0-4, and that 0-4 included a 23-21 loss to Greensboro, which had lost its other four games this season by giving up 191 points by scoring only 36 in those games. Basically, Gallaudet was winless and had lost to a team that only had bad losses, and it won by 50 on Saturday, scoring 48 points in the first half and outrushing Anna Maria 622 to 79. Pronunciation 101. Univistic. Gallardi. Monon Belt. Univistic. Willamette. Teal. Gallaudet. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Gallaudet. It's not Gallaudet. Even with all those rushing yards, uh, that was a long game because of all the scoring. It, it took 40 minutes to play the first quarter, and no lie, it took an hour to play quarter number two. That game was totally stat of the week worthy too, but Keith, my stat of the week comes from a game that looks kind of like your standard issue game between an upper half and a lower half OAC team with the Ohio Northern defeating Capital 51-21. And then you read that Christian Williams ran for, wait for it, 407 yards for Ohio Northern. Does this on just 29 attempts, breaks the record set by former ONU great Jamal Robertson by 100 yards. Uh, Williams has 73 of those yards on the final drive, and then Rodney Holmes comes in to score the touchdown. Williams gets the rest of the day off. Keith, for 407 yards, 29 carries isn't a lot. No, it sure isn't. I've got uh, some stats of the week for you from the St. Thomas-Concordia-Moorhead game just to show what a smothering defensive performance that was by St. Thomas. Concordia-Moorhead ran the ball 38 times. Uh, for 78 yards, that's about 2.1 yards per carry. Not good, but you know 
not the craziest number you'll ever see, right? We talked about Mary Harden Baylor holding Harden Simmons to under a yard per carry in the game. So you, you've seen worse than 2.1 per rush. But Concordia Moorhead also threw the ball 13 times and only gained two point yards per pass play, which I think is pretty crazy. Uh, they were also sacked four times in the game and fumbled five times. They lost three of them. Uh, that's a that's a you rarely see a team in in good weather um, fumble that many times. It was not a good day for Concordia Moorhead. Three of 14 on third down. St. Thomas wasn't a whole lot better. Two of 12 on third down. So you watch those two teams punt it back and forth to each other quite a bit in that one. But uh, Concordia Moorhead, as you mentioned, never able to get anything going uh, or even cross midfield. One other quick stat I'd like to wedge into stat of the week. Uh, Wheaton in their loss to Milliken, 15 penalties. Uh, Milliken had 10 penalties himself. So I don't know if you, you want to say, did Wheaton have a, a day where they just came unglued or were the refs a little flag happy in that one? Yeah, and I'm not qualified to say. Keith, uh, take us through our misses, our quick misses. There were um, not that many of them this week. Actually, pretty good um, quick hits on Friday if you read it. And uh, here's where we sort of check in. We make those predictions on Friday, then we check in with them on Monday's podcast. And uh, we did go wrong in a couple places. Cool guy Pat Coleman tried some counter-programming under Game of the Week and picked Delaware Valley's 41-6 beatdown of Albright. Uh, That's a miss. But actually, the other counter-programmers and the three of us who took the obvious Game of the Week, Mary Harden-Baylor at Harden-Simmons, weren't bad at all. Frank, uh, he, he gets a quick miss for picking against his alma mater. He was the only panelist, though, who did not project, currently project a member of the Mike Donnelly coaching tree to win as St. Lawrence Dan. Puck Haber did not win. Union won that one 30-6. Yeah. Um, we should probably talk about that at some point again, too. Uh, maybe it's not this week. Uh, about the Albright game, you know, it wasn't competitive. At least I learned what I wanted to learn out of it. But, uh, man. Again, just super, super unwatchable. About the quick hits, uh, Adam Turr picked an overtime game for Game of the Week. That was that uh, game between Frostburg State and Wesley. Uh, Keith, you and I and Logan Hansen, our guest picker of the week, uh, picked UW-Stout as the top 25 team most likely to be upset. And Ryan and Adam just missed by picking number 16, W&J. Frank put his faith in Wesley, and he was proven correct when uh, 11th ranked Frostburg lost. And then uh, Adam, Frank, and Logan accurately forecasted the winners in the four games between ranked teams. This is where the quiz is, folks. Everybody turn in your papers. I want to see your blue books. Yes, it was Mary Harden, Baylor, Mount Union, St. Thomas, and Wesley. Everybody also correctly picked an unranked team to pick up its first loss, and those went to Franklin and Marshall, SUNY Maritime, Carnegie Mellon, and Albright. Yeah, this is probably a good week to be picking the uh, top 25 team most likely to be upset because even if you wipe the uh, the four head-to-head matchups off the board, there were there was the Wheaton game, there was the, the there was Wisconsin Stout losing. Um, it, it was a, a week of quite it was Whitworth. You know, there was quite a bit of upheaval in the top 25. Keith, now's the time on the podcast where we go to social media for a question. And this one comes on Twitter from Hunter Castleberry at at HG Castleberry, C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, in case you want to check for yourself. And the question from Hunter is, what are your thoughts on HSU moving forward? That's Harden Simmons. Got to win out, obviously, but is that going to be enough? Lots of uncertainty. Hashtag D3FB. 
Ah, well, perfect hashtag. I'm going to answer this question for Harden Simmons, but also for uh, anyone else out there who's following a team that has one loss or a team that's undefeated but has a big head-to-head matchup coming up. You want to pay attention to this answer because these things could apply to you. Remember, the D3 playoffs are set up this season. There will be uh, 25 automatic bids going to conference champions. There will be two bids set aside for champions of conferences that don't have automatic bid access or and then or non-champions too also correct correct and then five uh set aside for runners up in uh in automatic qualifier conferences so that's how you get the 32 25 two and five at large bids and for those uh two and five generally speaking finishing with one loss against a power team and a power conference Hasn't kept teams out of the postseason historically, but fans of Harden-Simmons and teams in similar predicaments have to do more than just root for their team to finish 9-1 and or 8-1 and or ever, whatever the best runner-up record in your conference ends up being. You have to get familiar with the other contenders nationally for the five at-large spots and the criteria to earn them. The five main criteria are your record, head-to-head, record against common opponents, strength of schedule, and results against regionally ranked opponents. And it's really those last two that loom large between teams that are one-loss runners-up from conferences that have no overlap, no head-to-head matchup, no common opponents. You won't see the regional rankings until the last three weeks of the season, but results matter. The selection committee is free to interpret that however they like, and we tend to think it means that a 10-point loss to the number one team in the country is better than no result at all against a regionally ranked opponent. Those regionally ranked opponents will be teams in the top 10 in each of the four regions, east, west, north, and south, when those rankings come out uh, three weeks from the from selection Saturday. So each, each result against one of those top 10 teams in each of the four regions counts as playoff criteria. So you may have one team on the board that's two and one against regionally ranked teams, one that's zero and zero, and one that's zero and one. In Harden-Simmons' case, it's better to be zero and one than zero and zero. Uh, Harden-Simmons may not play another playoff contender, and their strength of schedule uh, might or might not end up being impressive. It's actually pretty good now, but it, uh, those tend to flatten out in 10-team uh, in, in conferences, as you said earlier. That game Saturday, when you look at it alongside other results versus regionally ranked opponents, and certainly Mary Harden-Baylor will, will end up as a regionally ranked opponent, it's not the worst thing in the world. You'd really ha- rather have a win or two against regionally ranked opponents but it could be worse than that 17-7 loss. Yeah, and so let's take a, a real brief discussion of Pool B now because some of the key results have come in and uh, we can get a more accurate picture. And here we are on October 9th at the end of Week 6 talking about Pool B for those of you who had Week 6 in the Pool B pool. Also, if you have a Pool B pool, I, I feel sorry for you. But we've got two teams that will be taken from this pool and then everybody else gets thrown into the at-large. And every time I say Pool my microphone pops. That's going to be great. It's going to be a it's going to be a fun playoff year. Okay. So what we're talking about is uh, Mary Harden Baylor. If they go ten and zero, it's not automatic, but it's essentially automatic going to the playoffs. Now you've also got a potential of Harden Simmons at nine and one, eight and one against Division three opponents. Also, you've got the possibility that Springfield runs the table, and Springfield is a team like what you were mentioning, Keith. Uh, a team that probably won't have a result against a, a regionally ranked opponent. It doesn't look like anybody on Springfield's schedule is going to get into the regional rankings, and that's going to make it an interesting conundrum because uh, you know we had this happen a couple years ago where uh, where Center was ten and zero, 
and did not get a Pool B bid because their strength of schedule wasn't very high. But then they do go into the at-large pool, and it's hard to keep an unbeaten team out of the playoffs. We haven't had an unbeaten team kept out of the playoffs under this system. So we might end up with all three of these teams going if everybody wins out, and they all could. You have Mary Harden-Baylor at 10-0 and goes. Uh, Harden-Simmons at 9-1, and 8-1 and versus D3. And, you know, Springfield at 10-0 and is going to the playoffs no matter what their strength of schedule in Springfield at 9-1. and Probably not. So if you're a, a fan of the Pride, you want uh, you got to run the table. I think every win is going to be uh, is going to be what they need here. Yeah, and, and that's the tough conundrum that that teams from non-automatic bid conferences are in, and and the reason Springfield's in that predicament is because the new MAC uh, just formed formed up for football this season. So new. if if Pool B overflows, that overflow spills into Pool C. That's bad. For teams, say, in the MIAC, where St. Thomas and St. John's and Concordia Moorhead all jockeying for that one automatic bid. The other two uh, will uh, – there will be some head-to-head um, play there. But the, the, there's potentially a 9-1 and one team uh, in the MIAC. There's potentially – right now there's three uh, unbeaten teams in, in the WIAC. So you're looking at maybe a, a WIAC team potentially being on the board. The fans of those teams will want to watch what happens in Pool B. Uh, that's New Mac. You really won't have to worry about any independence. So it's a New Mac. It's the American Southwest. Who am I forgetting, Pat? No, I mean that's it. Because all, right, so uh, all the SCAC teams got uh, split up into the SAA or the ASC. So those two conferences uh, potentially account for two bids. But if they put three teams in the pool. One of those is going to spill over into Pool C, so fans of, uh, of, of teams already with a loss will want to root against that happening. Um, and then after the, the 25 automatics and the two, the two um, teams from New Mac and ASC end up in the pool, everybody else who isn't in at that point where, where the first 27 teams are selected for the field, the last five spots go to them, and those teams will, will mostly be judged on the, that strength of schedule and their results against regionally ranked opponents, assuming they don't have uh, head-to-head matchups or common opponents. Much more about this over the course of the next few weeks. We'll have lots of uh, talk about playoff discussion and that sort of thing. I would say this is probably not a year where we get three teams from one conference. That did happen last year, and it did happen in 2007. But when you think about that, that also means there's 17 years in which that didn't happen. Thought I had Keith about uh, one of the candidates for play of the week. This week comes from UW River Falls. It's a, a pretty impressive catch by Trenton Munson. I come to find out mine. from a tweet by their coach Matt Walker that Munson's Twitter handle is the hands03 or the underscore H-A-N-D-Z-Z-03. That's a guy uh, where the Twitter handle really lives up to the name. My first thought, uh, Wisconsin lacrosse, 5-0. and you Think about them as potentially uh, get a top 25 votes, but then dive into the Eagles' schedule a little bit. Uh, their next four games at Whitewater versus Oshkosh at Platteville versus Stout, and then they finish at River Falls. So they're 5-0 and at the moment, but they haven't played the hard part of the YX slate yet. Yeah, I actually lowered lacrosse on my ballot. I was voting for them in the preseason. I've been holding them at about 21 throughout. But in my opinion, 
uh, over the course of the last few weeks. They just haven't lived up to that spot. This is an instance where even though they didn't lose, and in fact, they dominated an opponent. They just dominated UW-Eau Claire. They are still a bit down my ballot. Yeah, and I think as you look at your ballot, especially with so many teams losing this weekend um, and, and some of them being no longer top 25 worthy, that's an opportunity to, to slide some new teams uh, into the top 25, whether that be someone like Wartburg, someone like Springfield, someone like Framingham State that have been uh, hovering around the uh, the edge of the top 25 but but haven't had a chance to, uh, to get on the ballot. Uh, another thought of mine, Trinity, the, the ones from Texas, the Tigers. Uh, we talked on an earlier podcast about their amazing uh, overtime against Chapman and their rally. They did it again, uh, rallying from 10 down against Rhodes with 433 left to win in overtime again on Saturday. So they're having one of those cardiac seasons. We haven't talked that much about Case Western Reserve, and, and really they haven't played anyone so far. And uh, this is another spot where... We're going to talk about strength of schedule, but uh, two 0-6 teams on the Spartan schedule, two 2-4 teams, and the University of Chicago to open the season is the only opponent with even three wins. Opponents so far for Case Western Reserve, 7-22. and We mentioned earlier they don't play W&J this season, but they do finish with Westminster and with Carnegie Mellon. But next week, they got Teal, who's 1-4. So the NCAA strength of schedule on Case right now is 370, 15th from the bottom in Division Three. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Case. That's just one of the 23 unbeatens or two we've yet to mention on this podcast. I think we, we've mentioned Lake Forest uh, at least once this season, but we haven't mentioned Trine at all. And uh, that team is, uh, is also unbeaten. And again, I think it just, uh, since it's probably going to stay that way, we're not going to mention them except for this quick thought. Um, it just demonstrates the, how big. Uh, Division three is you, again, you know, you're looking at almost 30 conferences, you're looking at uh, 23 unbeaten teams at this point, a bunch of one loss teams. So whenever you wonder why your team isn't getting top 25 love, just got to keep on winning because uh, it, it takes a while to, to, to uh, sift through the uh, through the um, group of unbeatens. And meanwhile, I want to contrast Case with some teams with lower winning percentages that have had super tough schedules so far. Uh, start with St. John Fisher. They're pretty notoriously 0-5, but it's against the sixth strongest schedule in Division Three so far, a 677 SOS rating. Remember to think of that as like a, a winning percentage number, 677. Washu isn't that far behind. They're kind of serving time one year as an independent before joining the CCIW, and the Bears are 1-5, but they played the 19th best schedule, at least by the NCAA's strength of schedule calculation. Washu, by the way, they play at Case in Week 9. Well, uh, we talk. We're now that we're in Pool Six, we start to talk playoffs. We can talk strength of schedule. Uh, this is the kind of stuff Pat and I love, uh, and and hopefully the folks who uh, who make it this deep into the podcast like this kind of uh, number crunching too. But when you're uh, whenever we touch on the NESCAC, they're not participating in the playoffs, so um, none of that number crunching stuff really matters. Uh, Middlebury and Amherst played this week. Middlebury uh, won a shootout, 35-31. That leaves uh, the Panthers and the other Trinity, the one from Connecticut, as the uh, last two 4-0 teams in uh, in the NESCAC. And uh, Williams, believe it or not, un under Mark Raymond, they won again to improve to 3-1 and after an 0-8 season. And that leaves the NESCAC standings in a peculiar spot. Two 4-0s, four 3-1 teams, and then four 0-4 teams. 
but they play a full round robin, so there won't be any teams tied with uh, winless percentages at the end of the season. Keith, I've sent over to you a copy of the latest item from the Craig Burroughs collection. You got a second to go over it with me? Uh, sure. So what I've got here, and uh, as a reminder, the Craig Burroughs collection is a collection of, uh, let's say, memorabilia and uh, other various and sundry items from a, 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 a man's journeys across college football, all levels from, uh, from the Fiesta Bowl all the way down to Sprint JV football on Sunday afternoon. Th there probably isn't Sprint JV football. I might have made that up. But what I've got here, and uh, kind of continuing along the theme that uh, we've hit a couple times on the website over the course of the last few days, uh, remembering uh, the man Mike Donnelly, who was a longtime head coach at Muhlenberg, is I have a Muhlenberg uh, 2004 game program from their season opener against Kings Point. And as I was going through, just kind of reading some of this stuff, it's not a game I was at. Uh, it was a game Craig Burroughs was at, evidently. Uh, and I was at a couple of games at Muhlenberg in this era. But... Opening up to the uh, to page four, the coaching staff. We talked a lot about the uh, the Mike Donnelly coaching tree, and there are uh, there are now four guys on this page, if you include Mike Donnelly, who are head coaches of Division three football programs. It's uh, Mike Donnelly, Corey Goff, uh, who um, you know is now of course a, a Division three head coach. Uh, Jeff Nara, head coach at Kings. Tom Burke Perkovich, the head coach at Susquehanna. These are all guys who came up and were working for this guy in 2004. Yeah, and Pat, if you get a chance to tweet this page out, um, you'll see that Perkovich was in his second season, uh, Nar was uh, was in his sixth season, and uh, Corey Goff was in his fifth season working under Mike Donnelly. But um, Mike, in addition to being um, a, a good guy to us every time we had a chance to talk to him, he was uh, obviously someone his players loved and and uh were really moved by um when they found out he was sick um this summer and, and then found out they had passed this week you know that's a, that's a big moment i mean think about that in terms of whatever program you follow the the coach is almost as much as the school colors and the name and the and the the mascot um is part of the identity and so you, you know you lose the man at the top the man that probably in one way or another, brought you to that college. Uh, that's really big. But um, I think it's significant to note that he was as much committed to developing his players as he was to, to developing a coaching staff. And what better way to, to leave a little bit of a legacy behind than to have a handful of guys who you coach with now move on coach other Division three programs and, uh, and and help develop young men at other uh, small institutions across the uh, country. Coming up next week, we don't really have the, uh, the star-studded nature uh, on the schedule that we had this week, but week seven still looks pretty good uh, and kind of headlined at the top by a game that uh, I went to last year was a pretty good game and now switches over to the other venue with uh, number three UW Oshkosh going to the ninth-ranked UW Platteville. Yeah, and, and that's a, a huge one now because uh, with Whitewater and uh, and Wisconsin Stout each having picked up a loss, I think right now you, you look at um, Oshkosh and, and Platteville as um, the, the two front runners in the WIAC. You, you know, you still have lacrosse to worry about at this point, but that, that's a pretty huge game. Obviously, two top 10 teams. Um, 
And maybe Oshkosh, because they didn't play for two weeks early on the season and because Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor had their huge games this week, maybe have uh, forgotten a little bit about Oshkosh. But this is a team that was um, one score away from winning the Stag Bowl last season and uh, still ranked at number three, but can certainly use uh, another feather in its cap. Platteville has played uh, really a really interesting schedule. When you look back at it to this point in the season, having played George Fox, uh, West Coast team, having played East Coast team in Hampton, Sydney, and now getting into the the Wisconsin schedule. Um, Platteville's pretty well tested, but uh, hasn't been dominant. So that's a huge game next week. And and I think, to be honest, uh, two weeks from now or a week from now is uh, is when there'll be a lot more uh, great games popping back up on the schedule. But I don't think uh, week seven is bad at all. There'll be some other good ones. Um, North Central, number four, North Central at now unranked Wheaton. A couple weeks ago, we were looking at that as a potential clash of unbeatens. Now uh, Wheaton's just looking to uh, to get off the schneid. Harden Simmons at Sol Ross State. That game a little less um, exciting maybe than it would have been if Sol Ross had hung on and beaten Southwestern on Saturday. Kings at number 10, Delaware Valley. Number 17, Alfred, another one of those unbeatens that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about. They're at Cortland. Kane. At number 14, Wesley. Notice that Wesley moving up those rankings pretty quickly now, having played DelVal, having beaten Frostburg State. Hendricks at number 19, Barry. Barry is on a roll, 148-10 this week. Um, they are uh, atop the SAA right now, but Hendricks uh, could be trouble for them. Ohio Wesleyan at number 20, Wabash. A team that, um, when you compare their scores to the other two unbeaten teams, in uh, in the North Coast, that's DePaul and Wittenberg. Uh, not that impressive. So uh, Wabash, certainly the Little Giants could use a, a really impressive win on Saturday. Loris is at number 23. Wartburg, another unbeaten team that creeped into the the poll this week. Springfield, same thing. They're at Merchant Marine. Merchant Marine was uh, the preseason new Mac favorite in kickoff. Uh, but we also thought Springfield would be pretty good as well. This is the matchup right now in that conference. Chicago at St. Norbert, Adrian at Hope in the MIAA, Marietta at Wilmington, Salisbury at Montclair State. Other games to keep an eye on in Week 7. Wilmington could pick up another win. They've won two games already this season. Yeah, and, uh, and they've done it in dramatic fashion. And that was Around the Nation podcast number 179 for the week of October 9th, 2017. Thanks for listening, and, and uh, keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts because that will help other football fans find this podcast and give you another reason to say podcast in a future week. The executive, Seriously, seriously the executive producer of the T3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com, D-J-M-E-N-T-O-S. Thanks to our guest, Dan Gritty, and Sports Information Director Brian Marshall for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football. We do that on Twitter, for example, using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. 
We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. I don't know if you knew that. We may have mentioned it. Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. We have all sorts of new content on d3football.com each week during the season, so look for the play of the week on Mondays, uh, around the region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Adam Turr's Around the Nation column on Thursdays, our weekly quick hits predictions on Friday, and wall-to-wall to game coverage on Saturdays. Then we get your snap judgments from Adam Turr on Sunday, a new top 25, and then the next Monday we have a podcast. I'm just going to keep saying podcast until somebody stops me. Is that why we have a podcast? To, so to, that, fill, to fill Mondays? <laughs> well, I, we used to do statistical spotlight to fill Mondays. You remember that? That's that's back in the green border, d3football.com. <laughs> that sure was. Yeah, if, if you've been with us for a while, you remember the days when it wasn't all that mobile friendly and there were hash marks and yard lines on the side of the website. In fairness, if you, were, if you had a mobile device capable of surfing the web when we had that website, you'd be coming from the future or something.